0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
0: Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And as I've told you before, that's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app, download the app and listen anywhere you go. And just as a reminder, all of our conversations that we have here on Moment of Truth uh, do end up on our SoundCloud and on uh, podcast platforms. So if you miss it during a live presentation, you can also go there to check it out. Uh, And See it posted. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show today. I have with me Ashley Whedon, and she is a proud graduate of both University of Guelph and the University of Victoria. And uh, she is currently a PhD candidate in the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development. At the University of Guelph. And she is also a research associate with the Ontario office of the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Policy Alternatives sounds interesting. Maybe we'll have to ask her about that. But Ashley's here on the show today to talk to us about an article she authored in The Conversation. It is entitled Canadian Election 2021. Why rural, rural Canada Must Play a Central Role. And as we know, this is a very short election. It's passing very quickly. So we better get on with this conversation before the election's over. Don't you think, Ashley?
1: It is. A, <laughs> it's, a, it's a real short race to the finish line this time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And I, I like the way you started your article. Uh, depending on who you ask this election is either poorly timed or urgent, inconvenient or generation-defining, um, all of which seems very true.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it, it really does seem um, to a lot of people that we've got uh, issues on this particular ballot, um, whether they're being said outright or not, that feel quite urgent and pressing, you know, in terms of how we're going to address Mm. uh, the looming climate disaster, how we're going to address growing inequality, what it'll look like to continue to navigate uh, the pandemic and Mm. head towards hopeful recovery and as we head out of the post-pandemic, although we're not there yet. And then to others, you know, it feels Uh, Maybe rightfully so. It's only been two years since our last election. Mm. Um, You know, minority governments often are quite productive in terms of what they get done um, because they have to work together. So, you know, it really does depend on on your perspective on what we need to be doing. Um, But nevertheless, um, we're heading to the polls um, regardless of what we think, whether we should or not.
0: True enough. Now, you in your article uh, describe yourself as a ruralist, obviously, you've, you've uh, pointed that out to us, and a futurist. And uh, that, you know, your your interest in the election is focused on whether rural people and places find themselves marginalized, pushed to the per- periphery, or tokenized. Is that the reason you felt it important to write this article?
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I've had the the great uh, privilege and pleasure to work largely in local government for most of my career before I um, came back uh, to start a PhD journey, which I'm hopefully rounding the corner on. And uh, and all of my work is sort of been in service of, you know, do we see rural communities reflected in the policies that affect and shape rural our lives? Mm. Um, and sort of the genesis of my PhD project was a real frustration that rural communities weren't reflected in innovation policy. So I led a number of sort of future oriented pro- projects, specifically for Gray County, as well as for the Southwestern integrated fiber technology uh, broadband project, which is still, I think, the largest publicly funded broadband project in Canada to date. Um, and specifically communities like the one I was working for, you know, really had to fight to be heard or seen or reflected in public policy and agenda setting. And so, Um, You know, this is a a deep sort of frustration and love that that's carried me through much of my career. And then looking at this election, knowing that the issues that if we're going to take that generation defining bent to them that we're looking at are really keenly felt in rural areas, whether that's our relationship to the changing climate, whether that's the cracks we're starting to see in sort of underinvestment and mismanagement of infrastructure and our social safety nets. Um, and just in terms of the precariousness of access to healthcare, housing, transportation—all mm. of the things that we've come to realize are um, have been shaped by this pandemic and are really critical to the way we live our lives—they have different different ways of of rolling out or affecting people in rural communities, um, just the same way that we recognize that you know Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Berlin. Amsterdam, these are all different cities that Mm. will require different uh, policies and approaches. Uh, We've been quite lazy, on the other hand, with rural areas. We tend to think that they're all the same. We tend to have a a trick in policy that becomes rural, remote, and First Nations, as if that's all one word, not three very distinct types Mm. of communities that also differ amongst themselves. Um, and so when it comes to this election, you know, starting to look at those platforms across the various parties and, and really being curious about seeing the places that I know and love reflected in those agendas is really I think, a critical issue not only for rural communities but for all Canadians.
0: Mm. And you talked about that SWIFT program is is the one you were referring to earlier. And I've heard, uh, you know, considerable uh, uh, information about that. Now, you know, I'm just thinking about our conversation that we're having right now. As you said, you were on Saugeen First Nation and wondering how long ago it would have been before uh, we would have been able to have had this conversation from where you're located. That's one thing, I think, this idea about broadband connectivity that seems to be something that that could help all areas across the country
1: absolutely um and i mean i've i've written uh I can, broadband is the is the issue i just can't quit um it's because it's, <laughs> it's such a critical piece of infrastructure and, and believe it or not you know i was had the great fortune to, to get in on swift and, and it was supporting that from when it was first starting to be um, developed by the Western Ontario Wardens Caucus. I, I had the the great joy of getting to see that come to fruition. And we mm. really started working on that in 2010. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's a long process to getting to shovels in the ground. And I'm no longer with the project, right. um, but very proud of the stuff that they've been able to accomplish. But when we look at broadband in general, one, there's a tendency to reduce the rural issue to just a single kind of thing in this in this election cycle, it seems to be broadband. Um, and two, you know, we've had broadband policy statements to since the late 1980s, and not really managed to meaningfully move that needle. And I think it's important you mentioned, yeah, being on and First Nation, a lot of First Nations across um, this country have actually led the way in terms of community broadband networks and, and building out critical infrastructure and recognizing its value and importance to education, to accessing healthcare services, to accessing, you know, just opportunities to socialize, all of those things. Um, and the rest of Canada is very much lagging behind. But when we start looking at those platforms, and this is where, you know, this point I like to use digital policy as sort of the, the the foil that tells us so much about how we design public policy for better or worse is that, you know, we have the, the liberals saying that they're going to connect everyone in Canada to services of fifty ten in terms of 50 megabit download, 10 upload by right. 2030. Uh, the conservatives and the NDP saying they'll do it by 2025. Um, however, You know, putting aside for a second that those are horrifically unambitious targets that will feel as out of date by those milestones as dial-up does now, Mm. um, we don't see any real plans about, you know, why has this not been accomplished yet? Mm. And what are people meaningfully going to do to actually wrestle with the regulation and governance of how we deliver broadband services in this country? So when we start looking at those kinds of issues, we can see that, you know, we're, we're kind of dancing around the edges of a lot of these really important files without any meaningful engagement with the true core of the issue, which is how is it governed? Who's responsible for it? How do we take care of jurisdictional issues in an appropriate way? And arguably, a lot of the things that people are campaigning on in their platforms are actually provincial jurisdiction Um, when it comes to health or when it comes to protection of of attainable and affordable housing, all these things. So, we're already seeing the confusion there. Um, So, even though I'm in, you know, I'm in like grade 38, I like to read. I know that that's maybe unusual for um, the general public, (laughs) but it's really part of our job as voters to dig into those platforms and say, okay, you know, this is all nice and the language is really good, but what does it actually mean for where I find myself today, does the place that I call home is it reflected in mm. these platforms? What would it look like to achieve these things here, um, and to ask really kind of pointed questions of our would-be representatives about what they mean by a lot of their you know kind of platform platitudes?
0: Mm. I think looking at COVID and what it has done because of it moving us into isolation and I hear more and more about how uh, people are changing their workspaces. You know, that first of all, it was their home. Now I'm hearing things about work, workations, I think they're called where people are now they're (laughs) staying in their cottages. Right. And they're Mm -hmm. working from there setting up and they're actually enjoying that. So do you think that, that, you know, there's been so many things that that have come to light in the last couple of years, um, and have focused our attention differently. Do you think that this this change that we're focused in? And how it is making us look at rural and urban settings? Because, you know, yourself in your article, you point out about how people like yourself, you know, you go from one one place to another. There's a lot of people that live in the city, but they have their cottages, they have their places outside in the rural areas. Do you think that people are going to finally start seeing these as one and, and not so separate?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm a big proponent of even though, you know, I'm a ruralist, I'm a rural researcher, mm. um I'm my work is, is fundamentally oriented around place. And so the best part about when we start thinking about place based approaches is that it lets us get away from this sort of unproductive and increasingly dangerous um rural urban division framing Mm. because it really is about interdependencies and interlinkages less Mm -hmm. so than it's you know you versus me and we've seen just how unproductive you versus me becomes instead of us versus the problem and we've also however just as you said i think even briefly uh, saw increasing recognition for how important rural areas are mm. um, to the Canadian economy and a Canadian social fabric in terms of food security, food production, right. uh, how we're going to you know manage energy production in a sustainable way. What does it mean to look at rural places as carbon things? However, rural places are valuable in and of themselves regardless of what they provide to cities or to mm. urban people. and so we need to kind of switch that framing. Now, when we start talking about these trends in terms of is the pandemic going to redraw the map of where where we live? And Mm. arguably, I think that, you know, there's been a few folks that work in economic development in rural communities that have been pretty excited about the potential of people relocating there. And I always hate to be the wet blanket that burst their bubble. Um, However, most folks that are doing that are not moving to very far remote places. They're still looking at. Um, communities that are within, you know, that 90 minute sure. radius of wherever they're from. Yep. We also have to look at who's doing that movement. It's primarily white collar, upper middle yep. class people of means, yep. which creates this ripple effect of displacement. So as housing becomes crazy, unaffordable in Toronto or Vancouver, it's having spillover effects. So in Great Bruce, for example, housing prices are 46% higher in this time period than they were in the same time period last year. Um, that's a phenomenal jump to the average housing price being now, I think, $700,000 in this region. Um, who's that affordable for? Sure. Uh, who is being displaced from these communities that, you know, attracting knowledge workers is a bit of a double edged sword in that um, it's wonderful to have more interest in your community, however, if the centers of economic and political power still remain, you know, Bay Street, Queens Park, you know, Ottawa, Toronto, then nothing really changes in terms of where power lies in our communities and in our systems.
0: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth, and my guest here on the show is Ashley Whedon. She's a PhD PhD candidate at the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph. We're speaking with her about an article she authored in the conversation entitled Canadian Election 2021, Why Rural Canada Must Play a Central Role. And Ashley, are you are you seeing that rural people are getting engaged with this election so far? what what, are, what is your what are you seeing at your end? Well, it's
1: interesting. I think that, you know, like any election, the people that are engaged are very engaged. Mm. And then there's a lot of people who, um, you know, for a wide variety of reasons, finding this difficult to wrap their heads around during a pandemic, during forest fire season, mm. um, during all these kind of heavy and hard times that are happening in our in this country. Um, but I am seeing, you know, from, from the circles that I'm connected to, a growing kind of um, frustration that uh, we've heard about, you know, a, a rural lens for public policy. Mm-hmm. And we've heard about sort of nominal kind of almost, you know, using rural as an as a as a code word for kind of nostalgia for a thing that never existed and so you know there's a real concern about kind of rural issues quote-unquote being almost weaponized uh, <laughs> to to appeal to a certain kind of demographic mm. um and i think that you know when you start to really look down at it the, the advocacy that we've seen um, around better support for healthcare resources, exactly as the conversation around attainable and affordable housing, all of these issues affect cities and rural places. And I think you're starting to see gal- people galvanize around those issues. What I'd love to see more of is okay, what does that look like to do that in an equitable and just way, recognizing that you know a- attainable and affordable housing solutions that are introduced it's a wicked problem same as with transportation or any these there's no right answer there are just lots of answers that sometimes create other spillovers so how are we going to address these things not only in toronto or vancouver but also in wellesley or in um you know otterville or in pickle lake or Mm -hmm. all these kinds of places um and you know you're seeing this happen around specific kind of issues and and friends that work in healthcare saying, you know, well, nurses in the Bruce Peninsula can't afford to have a home Mm -hmm. in their community. That's a well-paying, largely, you know, relatively speaking compared to your barista, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a well-paying job. If they can't afford to live there, uh, what's the incentive for them to work in a rural hospital? And then what happens to that rural hospital? Mm -hmm. So the real thing that I'm curious about seeing forward and I'd love to see more people um, maybe talking about, is is these creative solutions that don't rely on per capita or quote-unquote, like, you know, bums and seats right. funding solutions. We've seen the issue with rural schools, with transportation networks like Greyhound closing, with all of this kind of stuff. How do we get away from idealizing public-private partnerships, which we've seen not actually work all that well in rural settings, and how do we get towards solutions that don't just favor... Uh, This great term that I've heard, you know, around geographic narcissism, right? Which is when we assume that the the urban default is the only reality or structural urbanism, which then bakes that into the way we do policies, which is is per capita basis. And what does that look like to do on the scale of the project that is this country, right? We have such vast geography, um, broadband, for example, laying fiber through Mm. the Canadian shield is different than having to label resistant cables on freeze-dried muskeg is different than having to string cables to make them almost hurricane resistant in in the atlantic provinces Mm. and so that will change the costs and the implementation process but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to achieve the same standard and this is where colleagues of mine like karen foster from dalhousie who's advancing this framework around the right to be rural Um, which I love because if we start interpreting these things through a rights-based lens, it galvanizes people a little bit more to think about, yeah, why would I accept lesser rights because of where I live? You know, if if accessing the internet is critical to accessing other fundamental rights, then why should it be less so than in an urban environment? Same with access to education or health or housing. Um, That gives us a new way of interpreting them. So I am seeing, you know, um, people wanting to engage, but also just we're all fried, right? This is such yeah. a, it has been such a, a challenging, traumatic, difficult, um, uh, almost two years now, I guess we're at the 18 month mark. Um, encouraging people, you can't, you almost can't blame folks for feeling, you know, a little bit like, okay, how do we just get through this election rather than really engaging with the issues? And, and I, 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 you can't blame people for that. I, I completely understand the difficulties around kind of adding this to your plate, but it is really important that we do take some time to consider those implications.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that will be the catchphrase at the end of this election. We just got through it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does feel a little bit bleak to say that, um, but, you know, unfortunately, it is a thing that we're, we're in it as I said at the top, whether, whether we decided to be or not um and you know the ultimate interesting thing will be to see where the chips fall at the end of the process mm-hmm. i do think that you know uh, it can be both things at once right so when you when you start with that frame around it's either inconvenient or absolutely mm-hmm. important um it can be both like it's a sure, it, it, things yeah. are, are complex <laughs> it can be both of those things yes um and i think that it might be like i think that i think the more accurate reflection is a Yes, and rather than an either mm-hmm. or. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, now going back to something you pointed out in the article, and and it brings in the the rural a- angle, and that is that uh, you said some people were saying if there hadn't have been all these uh, these forest fires, these these fires burning out of control, um, there may not have been an election. How do you see that tying in with this?
1: Well, I think that there was a um, it was an interesting comment made on Twitter um, by someone that said, you know, if the fires that have been affecting largely. Rural and remote portions of British Columbia right. had been um, affecting a major urban um, center like Vancouver, or you know, even more so centrally in Canada. Mm. You know, like we're in Ontario. It's hard. Uh, I think. Yeah, I lived in BC for a few years. I get that everyone thinks we're we're focused on ourselves, um, but it is hard to believe that you know that had there been forest fires really threatening threatening. The perimeter of the gta would an election have been called at all um and i think you know you can apply that to a lot of issues of severe drought facing
0: mm-hmm. farmers
1: in northern ontario and through yep. the prairies yep. um a lot of the issues going into that and so there is a little bit of that feeling that you know like do you do people that as our decision making processes have become so increasingly centralized there's a little bit of that disconnect, right? Between rural realities and where our halls of decision-making are. Um, And you kind of, you can't, it's easy to understand, I guess, why people would say, you know, like anybody that was facing the same issues that, you know, having watched their entire community just burn to the ground Mm -hmm. as they did in Lytton or facing the threat of a similar situation elsewhere in BC, (coughs) um, that, you know if that was happening in ottawa there wouldn't have been an election called and also you know kind of do people really understand what that's like to live through and then add this on top of it mm. so i think <coughs> i think yeah. when we start thinking about all of those things it really does point to this the importance of being really curious about someone else's experiences and what life is like for people in different places in this country. And, you know, that goes beyond just campaign stops and goes towards really actually talking to people and making sure that people are engaged and informed about the decisions that will affect their lives. And I think as we have not only centralized the way in which, you know, government happens, but also the way in which public administration happens in terms of where offices are located. We've moved away from a lot of regional kind of approaches to things. There's been a a downloading of responsibilities, but not necessarily of capacity. And the further and further away that that kind of not only the decision making, but also the kind of the machinery of government gets from its community applications the more disconnected it becomes from actually being impactful and so to some extent i'd love to see us go back to like what we had at the provincial level here in ontario for a long time was you had a very committed rural extension program where um, people were out in the community and that fed back directly into policy formation in terms of a conversation between rural communities and the provincial government at the federal level, you know, we had the rural secretariat, although it was disbanded in 2013 and nothing's really replaced it. Mm. Um, so when we start thinking about does a rural lens or rural proofing look like this, maybe if we had paused and thought about the massive issues facing large swaths of this country, um, the election might have been timed a bit differently in in respect of that. Um, And I think that's a fair criticism by a lot of folks whose whose lives are threatened by, you know, by fire, by drought, by any number of major crises that's happening right now.
0: Right. Yeah, all good points. Uh, Just as we start to wrap up, uh, I want to bring it back to something you did talk about. You talked about climate action and the climate crisis we're in, Um, income gaps you talked about. You you also talked about uh, reconciliation and nation to nation relationships. Are you seeing that at all uh, in in any of your conversations as being an important uh, election issue?
1: i think that unfortunately it has not been made an important election issue and it needs to be mm-hmm. um we absolutely uh, must push this forward in terms of what we're expecting from from the leaders that are, are hoping to occupy a seat in in the uh, in parliament um, what they're going to do uh, to actually advance these goals you know we're We're creeping out uh, for, for what, more than five years from the Truth and Reconciliation Mm -hmm. um, Reports Commission. We have the report from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls uh, recommendations. Um, We have a clear path in terms of what to do and how to do it, um, but I'm not seeing or hearing any real promotion or concerted talk um, by any of the political parties about what exactly they're going to do to make sure this work happens. And I think that, you know, a large portion of First Nations reserves are located in rural and remote, remote portions of what mm-hmm. we now call Canada. Um, there is a, a, a very strong requirement and, and sort of keenly felt relationship there um, in terms of, of even how do we think of rural? How did rural as a concept get created in a, in a colonial mindset? Mm. Um, and so when it comes to moving forward, just like anything, what I want to see is, you know, a firm commitment to saying, look, it's, we don't have to come up with new plans. The plans have been written and, and we've been told exactly what we need to do. Let's just do it. And I, I always go back to a quote by Bill Reimer, who's a professor emeritus at Concordia University and a, a, sort of a giant in the field of Canadian rural studies. And he does say that, you know, like, we know what works like we know what we should do we just have to commit to doing it and so whether that is climate whether that's infrastructure whether that's how we house people or deal with inequality and the true work of truth and reconciliation that we really have to engage in in terms of what does that look like in terms of of Canada's landscape and how land is allocated and and who's in control of stolen land, you know, Mm. uh, is, is critical to whatever our future looks like. Um, so it's time that we, we hammer home to people that want our votes that they need to get specific about not only what they're going to do, but how they're going to get there. Um, because it's good to make a promise, but it's, it's terrible to break it. And so far, that's a lot of what we've
0: seen. Mm. Right. Ashley, we'll have to leave it there.
1: Not to end on a downer, but I do. Yeah, exactly. I think that you know, we can get to those implementation plans and, and do those things. And that's really what we should be asking of folks. And and that's an exercise of agency. We all mm. have the power to do that.
0: Well, I think you've given people a lot to think about uh, as we head into the uh, final run of this election, a very short uh, time period. But um, we'll have to leave it there. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show to talk about your article, Canadian Election 2021, Why Rural Canada Must Play a Central Role. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Ashley, and I look forward to speaking with you again
1: it's been wonderful thank you so much for having me
0: you bet Ashley Whedon is a PhD candidate uh, at the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph and that is this portion of the show please don't go away we will be right back with more right after this now back to moment of truth with David Moses
1: Element element element
0: fm Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest here on the show for this part of Moment of Truth is Megan McMurtry. She's an associate professor in psychology at the University of Guelph. She's the director of the Pediatric Pain Health and Communication Lab and a clinical and health psychologist with the Pediatric Chronic Pain Program at McMaster Children's Hospital. Dr. Bertry's research and clinical interests focus on acute and chronic pain, medical procedure-related fear, as well as communication and family influences in these contexts. So it's a pleasure to have her here because we're going to be talking about an article she authored in the conversation. It is entitled, Needle Fears Can Cause COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy, But These Strategies Can Manage Pain and Fear. So it's a pleasure to have Megan with us here on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So your your article in the uh, in, in the uh, conversation, as I mentioned, uh, about fears around needles, uh, something of course we've heard a lot about uh, during the course of COVID nineteen. And so the first question, though, I have for you is: What is the difference between just but a fear? And just saying, I don't like getting needles.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to unpack um, fear, but also anxiety Mm. to understand this, right? So, Mm. you know, anxiety and fear are pretty closely related. um, But fear is really that in the moment alarm reaction that Mm -hmm. we all experience Mm -hmm. and It can kind of range um, from lower levels to pretty severe levels, right? So if I come across a bear in the woods, um, I'm likely to have an alarm reaction. And I should because that's adaptive in that context. Or I might be a little bit frightened um, by a door sort of slamming in the background, you know, when I'm at home and I know that I'm alone. Um, And anxiety is sort of similar, um, but it is more future oriented kind of apprehension. And so I might be anxious about an upcoming interview or um, a big presentation at work, for example. Um, And so, both anxiety and fear and just kind of not liking something, um, can they all can exist on spectra from kind of low to high. Hmm. And where we really need to worry about these things in terms of needles is when the anxiety and fear get to really high levels. So, for many people, you know, we may not like needles, um, but we're able to kind of manage that dislike or maybe that little bit of worry that we experience and successfully get the procedure done mm-hmm. and this is important as you mentioned because we need needles for um, in healthcare for diagnosis for monitoring health conditions um, for prevention um, of issues such as you know the COVID-19 vaccine mm-hmm. and so if we have higher levels of fear and anxiety that can really get in the way and so you know I'm sure we'll talk about the fact that over um You know, different ages, there are different sort of prevalences of those sort of more extreme levels of needle fear and anxiety, which I'll just for simplicity um, talk about the needle fear piece. Yeah, so... So we know that for children, for example, needle fear um, is really common, sort of some level of needle fear is present in the majority of children. Mm. Um, And then in about half of adolescents, and somewhere between, you know, 20 and 30% of 20 to 40 year olds. Um, But that's just sort of some level of fear. But when it gets to be really extreme, that is less common, um, but still occurs. And we like our best estimates really are somewhere in one in 10 individuals.
0: Right. Now, when you say that, what I'm wondering about is, is that at all related to the idea of protecting ourselves? You know, because it's an unknown and it's a foreign thing that's going to be entering our body. does, Does that enter that anxiety element for most people, do you think?
2: I think it can. Um, One of the things that we know about fears, especially as they got to sort of more of the extreme levels, is that they're not always logical. Mm. Um, But sometimes there can be like certainly a logic to it in terms of if we just take it on its surface, having You know, a metal object inserted um, and then something else entering our body that Mm. wasn't there before. You know, that is a sort of strange concept if you if you take it just on that kind of level. Um, And so certainly, you know, when we think about children, their ability or inability to kind of fully understand what it is that we're asking them to do can Mm -hmm. play a role. And even for adults, you know, um, in speaking to adults who have needle fear, there are many things that they um, will tell me that they're afraid of. So, sometimes it's around the pain. Sometimes it's around just the sight of something, like a needle entering their body. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, as you suggest, this idea that um, something is kind of being injected into them.
0: Right. Right. This fear or anxiety, I I mean, the way you start the article really sets it up very well in terms of, you know, thinking about the last time you were really afraid and, you know, breaking out into cold sweats and trembling and heart pounding. and you know when you you put it like that around to something like a needle that is that is a terrifying situation to find yourself in and uh, for those people that you that we talk about one in ten people I think your article says uh, that people uh, have this reaction and and fear so that uh, that is a fair amount of people though
2: it is and I think um, the reason why I start the article that way and thank you for your kind words is that I think for some individuals who don't who haven't experienced fear in this way or, or don't have um, kind of fears about something that other people find irrational. They, they have trouble kind of understanding or empathizing with people who have needle fears, Mm. but we've all experienced fear in some context, right? And so I think it's important for those of us who don't have high levels of needle fear to really kind of understand what that might be like and what we're asking people with high levels of needle fear to do when they're trying to get that needle, because it's not their choice and they're not just sort of fully um, under, you know, have the ability to sort of snap out of it, right? But fear is, you know, um, is an alarm reaction that we're designed to have as human beings. And it's really unpleasant, right? Um, when we have that kind of fight or flight stress response kind of in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important for us to to think about what for those one in 10 individuals um, that that's, you know, what they're facing. And, and for some of those individuals, they're able to um, still, kind of focus on why they're getting, say, the COVID-19 vaccination um, and really kind of get themselves through it. And um, I certainly hope for them that the the procedure goes as well as it can. Um, The challenge can be that when we have those kinds of stress responses, it can put us at risk for having kind of a negative procedure, which, of course, if you think about it, then is going to make our fear go up. Mm -hmm. Um, And with a two dose vaccination or thinking Mm -hmm. about other needles is going to have implications for the next time. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, part of what I wanted to do with this conversation article, as well as other um, pieces that I've published is around uh, really conveying that there are evidence based strategies to manage the pain and kind of low levels of fear related to needles as well as strategies that we can take from the specific phobia literature um, in terms of exposure-based treatments um, mm-hmm. for fear, which can help individuals with those really severe fears. Because I think we really need to make these procedures as comfortable
0: as possible. Right. And you, you talk about some of those things in your article, but you mentioned phobias there. And, and, and how does it relate from, say, this, this fear and phobia
2: Yeah, great question. So um, I've talked about the spectrum, you know, of anxiety and fear from low to high. And I've talked about about one in 10 people who have that sort of really very high kind Mm. of levels. So a specific phobia is a mental health diagnosis that really is the combination of extreme fear and extreme anxiety Um, And sort of distress, um, impairment or avoidance of whatever the sort of phobic or feared situation is. So often we're familiar with arachnophobia around spiders Mm. or um, people who really um, have difficulty with elevators or other enclosed spaces or heights, for example. Um, So these are all examples of specific phobias and it's really the very, very extreme kind of tail end of that spectrum that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So for, um, For the the specific phobia that is related to needles in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's called blood injection injury phobia. So it kind of clusters a few things together. And our best um, estimates, it's somewhere around like three and a half to maybe four and a half um, percent of individuals meet sort of diagnostic criteria for a specific phobia, um, the blood injection injury phobia. But I think, you know, while certainly we we should be concerned and try to help those individuals, many people who have high, high levels of fear are not going to necessarily show up to a mental health professional um, in order to get that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So it's really such an, I think, an underestimate. And it's certainly an underestimate of the people who are still sort of suffering and impaired um, from their level of fear. So that's why I tend to focus on that kind of one in 10, um, because certainly there are studies showing that many people do not seek help or like will receive the diagnosis, even though um, the fear is getting in the way, if that makes
0: sense. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has gotten to that level around the fear of, say, a needle or something uh, in your presence that you're trying to deliver to them for their benefit, um, where they are either they have either fainted or they have uh, had such a, 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 a severe reaction that you you yourselves or the people in the room then must also feel stressed about the situation?
2: Right so you bring up a great um a really important point. Now I'm not a vaccinator, right? right so right. I have been in the room um with individuals who are extremely frightened and it and it's difficult um often for people who have not had um, the training specifically Mm. to deal with that, to know what to do. Mm. Um, And I think there's a few reasons for that. But one thing I want to point out is that you highlighted sort of this idea of emotion contagion, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. And as human beings, as a very social species, um, that's very natural that we Mm -hmm. do that, right? We have sort of, we engage in observational learning, you know, what's going on for you Mm -hmm. um, and, oh, what what does that mean for me if I'm going through it next, for example, right? So, I'm, I'm using a bit of a different concept. Context, But let's imagine, you know, the mass vaccination clinics that occur. Mm-hmm. And if someone is very afraid or is having kind of um, an adverse event during the needle for some reason, having them on display for individuals who are waiting um, is really problematic, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. going to help the person sure. who's having that um, that issue yep. manage any better. Right. We, we, none of us want to feel like we're on display. Right. If right, right. something like that is happening. And then it also has a, has the um, potential to drive up the, the fear for those who are waiting. Right. Yep. Um, and so that's something that um, as part of a, a world health organization um, subcommittee, um Where we looked at um, immunization stress related responses. And that's this idea of like having these kinds of stress responses in the context of vaccinations. And really, what can we do to prevent and manage those? um, Because they're not to do with something wrong with the vaccine itself, um, but they are um, often around sort of fear and other issues. And so, really making sure that we have clinics that are designed in such a way so that clinicians um, know how to keep things calm and that clinics are designed so that there's sort of one-way traffic flow. There's not people... You know, who are on display when they're getting their vaccinations and people in long lineups because mm-hmm. prolonged standing is actually a risk factor right. um, for a vasovagal response, right? So sure. it's actually, there's a lot of points of kind of intervention, but it really does get back to also what you talked about with that sort of emotion contagion piece, right? There's a lot of players here, right? Yeah. The clinician needs to know what to do, the individual getting vaccinated needs to know what to do, as well as any caregiver present, right, needs to be mm-hmm. calm. And then the people who are kind of waiting and observing, um, hopefully they're not necessarily observing everybody else getting the needles um, because that's not necessarily helpful Mm. unless it's like a calm um, situation that's unfolding.
0: Yeah, when you get into this, wow, there are so many things at play uh, when you think of it. It seems like such a very simple thing to be getting a needle, and yet, uh, you know, look at all the things we're talking about, and you've just uh, mentioned, that come into play to get this done, especially in in things such as a pandemic and people lining up to get needles uh, right around the world. Fascinating stuff. You're listening to Moment of Truth here on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is uh, Megan Mc as she is an associate professor in psychology at the University of Guelph we're talking to her about her article that she authored in the conversation it is entitled needle fears can cause COVID-19 vaccination hesitancy but these strategies can manage pain and fear now uh, Dr. McMurtry just mentioned something else I want to tell you about uh, she was the co-principal investigator and an evidence lead on the national help eliminate pain and kids in adults team which created two clinical practice guidelines Regarding vaccination pain and needle fear management aspects from the pain management guideline were endorsed for vaccinations worldwide by the World Health Organization. And recently, Dr. McMurtry was the sole psychologist on the small subcommittee of the WHO's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccination Safety, tasking with uh, creating guideline guidance rather on immunization stress-related responses. So it's a pleasure to have uh, Dr. McMurtry with us here on the show. To talk about this now I know you've been wanting to talk about some of the things to get around the ha- vaccination hesitancy and um, and and there is um, one thing I, I also just before we get there want to mention and that is what about the idea of just merely talking about this is that I'm sure that could possibly be stressful to people
2: right okay so excellent point um, so yes And by avoiding it, though, um, entirely, we're not going to make it go away. Right. So as we know, anxiety and avoidance tend to go hand in hand, but avoidance doesn't um, help. And so we're going to talk about exposure based um, management for needle fear. And the idea is that you're facing your fear. So I think if we talk about it in a responsible way, then that makes sense. Right. So um, if you uh, follow anyone who's sort of a, a pain researcher, um, researcher on vaccine hesitancy, also on Twitter, there's often an outcry now when the media um, presents pictures of mm. people undergoing vaccinations mm-hmm. who look horrified, terrified right. yep. um, in grimacing in lots of pain, because if it's actually well managed, this should not be the case. And so we don't need to be sort of um putting that out there as the face of um, being vaccinated, right? Um, And so I think we need to acknowledge that these fears um, exist and open the door for the conversation and allow space for it without kind of the fear mongering. So I'm going to give you an example, actually. So um, a study led by Dr. Anna Taddeo, on which I was also a a main partner, we did school-based vaccination, um, we did a a treatment treatment, for school-based vaccinations in mm. the Niagara region. And okay. this has since become the CARD program or the comfort, right. mm-hmm. relax, distract, right? So for the nurses mm. in the study, initially there was some trepidation about us asking before the needle, whether someone is afraid. Mm. Um, And the nurses were concerned, as many people are, well, won't that kind of suggest that to them? Mm. Won't that make it worse? Um, And really, there isn't any evidence to suggest that that's the case. Mm. And in fact, it's actually it opens a space for people to be able to talk about it and feel heard. Mm. And it also allows a clinician to feel prepared about who they have in front of them. Mm. So actually after the nurses um, had been implementing that for a little while, they actually came back to us and said, this was wonderful. Hmm. Um, and we actually want to be doing this all the time. Hmm. Right. And so it actually um, is is very helpful um, if it's done in a responsible way.
0: And, and so getting beyond that, uh, what are some of the other uh, therapies and, and things that can be done to help?
2: Right, so the card system um, is really helpful for that sort of pain management around the time of the needle and kind of low to maybe moderate levels of fear. Mm-hmm. But for people who I've been focused on at the beginning of our interview, that one in ten yep. um, individuals who are just really afraid yeah. um, of needles and even hearing about them is difficult. You know, seeing pictures of them is difficult. Yep. They need a different approach um, because essentially their anxiety is going to lead them to want to avoid, 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 um, and if they are able to overcome that and then get into the situation. Um, Anyway, if they have that fear response during it, they're at risk um, for having a pretty negative procedure. So we want to actually increase their confidence um, before they even get to the procedure. And so, this is a sort of different approach, and it's exposure-based therapy, which really falls under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And it really uh, involves facing one's fear in a slow, gradual, and controlled way. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing when you're um, facing that fear is you're learning over time that what you're most afraid of isn't going to happen. And that sort of most afraid of piece, that belief, we call that the catastrophic belief. So it's that you learn that it's not going to happen or that if it does, it's actually not as bad as you thought and you can kind of survive it. Right. right, right. Um, and so this is really used for um, specific phobias and fears that are out of proportion to the danger posed, which is logical, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously we wouldn't be getting people to face their fear to a for a bear in the woods, right? right. That doesn't make sense. Right. But when the danger actually is not um, as high as one thinks it is, yes. this is when we can use exposure-based fear right? or exposure-based treatment, excuse me.
0: Yep. So
2: it's considered, you know, really the gold standard um, for specific phobias. And so, you know, in, in practical kind of steps, what happens is that an individual um, lists out all the different kind of components of what, freaks them out right um mm-hmm. during like about the procedure sure and this is really important that it's um driven by the individual meaning that they are really involved in saying, okay, it's this part that I don't like, this is what I'm afraid of, um, because fear can be really idiosyncratic, meaning that it's sort of specific to the individual, mm. that while there are some things that are kind of common that people are afraid of, like pain, mm-hmm. um, there are other things that might be more specific to that individual. So, um, they li- write out this, this bunch of list of things Then they order it um, or then they rank or rate their fear in response to each of the situations. Um, So, for a child, it would be maybe from zero to ten, where ten is the most um, fear possible. For Mm -hmm. an adult, they could go like zero to a hundred. And then they order the steps from lowest to highest. And that becomes what's called a fear hierarchy. So, for example, I might really even be afraid of looking at pictures of needles, even cartoon pictures of needles, but that might get me, maybe that's a rating of 20 out of 100 for me, Um, whereas watching a video of getting a needle procedure done, someone else having that done might be, you know, a 50 out of 100. So, what I'd want to do is have a hierarchy that has sort of smaller incremental steps, Um, where I can practice facing each step, you know, facing my fear until I learn that my fear is going to come down and I can handle it before moving on to the next step. Right. So I'm gaining that confidence and then once that sort of is more addressed and the person can benefit even more from the, the pain management strategies um, that I talked about before. Right. So this is not an easy task um, right. for people. Sure. You know, it certainly um, is the gold standard, um, but it's not easy and it's asking for kind of a lot of motivation um, mm-hmm. for people to do. Um, but I think it's it's really important for us to be aware that that treatment um, is out there and that, you know, we're certainly working on ways to make it more accessible um, for individuals. Um, in the most severe, complicated cases, you know, people are probably always going to need a mental health um, professional to help them. Yep. But it would be nice to, as part of like a stepped care approach um, for us to have more accessible treatments. And so that's something that I'm working on.
0: Mm. It, it also sounds like something that you know the person has to be ready to want to uh, uh, do this as well, yes. right? Um, yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, and they do have to be ready to do that. And that, and that can be a big ask, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so it may be that it's only at the sort of lowest levels that they're, you know, willing to even start doing, or maybe yeah. it's imaginal based yeah. exposure, right? Sure. They're only just even imagining looking at pictures sure. rather than actually looking at pictures, for example.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a good place to start anyway, because people are not, you uh, don't easily face those fears. That's what—that's the whole point, right? It's that's what makes it so difficult to begin with.
2: Absolutely, and and for the rest of us who, if we don't have that fear around needles, we can think about though what we might be afraid of, right? And yeah. yeah. we to be able to put ourselves yeah. in those people's shoes and not dismiss it. <clears throat> so the one thing that I haven't touched on is that um, strategy around the vasovagal response yes. or the sort of dizziness and fainting, mm-hmm. um, and that's something called muscle tension. So um, what we think is happening or or you know what has been um, proposed to be happening when people faint in the context of needles is that their um, heart rate and blood pressure initially increase and then they suddenly decrease and that's what leads to the faint. Mm. So the muscle mm. tension strategy is designed to counteract that by keeping up um, someone's blood pressure. Right. So really, all it's very simple and all it involves is an individual. Um, Tensing major muscle groups mm-hmm. so um, in this context that would be legs and maybe your abdomen mm-hmm. um, not your arms because you don't want to tense the one that the, the needle is right. going to go in <laughs> um, but they they tense those muscles um, until they feel kind of flush in their face and then they release the tension they don't fully relax they just release it yes. For, you know, say 20 seconds and then tense again and then release. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will say that this, uh, you know, a brief uh, brochure describing how to do this, as well as um, brochures and some of the other things that we've talked about are available on Immunize Canada's mm-hmm. um, website. And certainly there's lots of the card materials there, too. Great. Um, because many of these strategies are relatively you know, straightforward, simple. Sure very cost effective. And yep. we want people to know um, that there are ways to make these needle procedures much more comfortable.
0: It also sounds like if people do uh, take this approach, that there could be uh, other benefits for them in terms of applying the same thing to perhaps other fears or other things that they want to overcome. It, it sounds like it you know, has benefits.
2: Absolutely. So exposure-based yep. um, treatment is, you know, is absolutely used um, for anxiety disorders yep. um, in general. Again, if we're thinking about mental health diagnoses, but it's true also, you know, all of us experience anxiety from day to day yep. and kind of knowing, well, like this avoidance is not helpful. You know, I'm safe for example, I'm dreading sending that one email um, today. Do I avoid it all day and kind of have it on my mind anyway, or do I do it right away, <laughs> right? And just get it done. Yeah. Um, and so certainly I think, um, you know, cognitive behavioral, therapy um is a success story um within you know the the sort of therapy kind of literature and is something that can be very helpful um Mm -hmm. for for day-to-day life and i think for me um you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate in getting these strategies out in the context of COVID, uh, but it's not just specific to the context of COVID, right? Because needles are ubiquitous in healthcare and we really have a responsibility to make them as comfortable as they can be. And to also to arm um, or give, you know, children and their parents and adults, the strategies that they need um, Mm -hmm. so that they can feel, you know, confident and comfortable um, in their healthcare.
0: And I certainly remember as you were talking about the images of how uh, we were inundated with those images at the start of COVID-19 the news had them everywhere and i remember talk about them that they were asked to, to i think pull those images back because people were getting really sick of looking at them and i, I you know and and rightfully so even even if you don't have a fear <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let's show it as, as it can be a much more positive experience, mm-hmm. you know, so um, for, for many of us, when we do get our, our needles, it is a positive experience, yep. right? Yep. So, um, it's not, you know, necessarily painting, uh, you know, a false perspective, it can absolutely be a positive, comfortable experience
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, for individuals.
0: Megan, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and and talk about this and share uh, some of the article that you authored in the conversation. Needle fears can cause COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy, but these strategies can manage pain and fear. And it's been a pleasure talking to you about that. And I thank you for sharing this information.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me, David.
0: You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Megan McMurtry is an associate professor in psychology at the University of Guelph, and we've been talking to her about her article in The Conversation. You can find it there and read it for yourself. And that is our show for today. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.